ask questions of who's funding this research, who's sponsoring this research, what are their perspectives, if they have any, who was or wasn't included. I'm Salisa Steele. I'm Jeff Cobb, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 344, which features a conversation with Elizabeth Engel and Polly Karpowitz. Elizabeth Engel has worked in the association industry for more than 25 years. For the last 10 years, she's run Spark Consulting, which provides membership strategy consulting to associations. Polly Karpowitz is an association executive and consultant whose work focuses on strategies related to research, publishing, communications, marketing, membership, and technology. Elizabeth and Polly co-authored a white paper titled Caveat Emptor, Becoming a Responsible Consumer of Research. And that publication is the focus of this conversation. Jeff, Polly, and Elizabeth touch on primary versus secondary research, qualitative and quantitative research, mixed research methods, the ethics of using people in research, and bias, including response bias, instrument bias, analysis bias, and confirmation bias. They get a bit technical and talk about validity, reliability, statistical significance, but the take-home message is simple. It's important that learning businesses and others pay attention to the research they consume and rely on for making decisions. Jeff, Elizabeth, and Polly spoke in January 2023. What's it really like to engage with organizations? What does working with you in, entail? Elizabeth and I actually started at the same association a million years ago when we were about seven or eight. So a lot of my experience with associations before I started consulting was within a professional association. And there we actually both worked for the American Political Science Association at a critical time, I think, for associations when so many things were changing. So I had the tremendous opportunity to have my hand at a lot of different things from the beginning, surveys and research, international programs, some membership-oriented programs, communications, marketing, and then eventually publishing. So like Elizabeth, I have over 25 years of experience that I think mine is understanding how all the pieces fit together because I've lived that. I've been that person who was spread between so many different departments, but also towards the last 10 years of my association professional career and into the 10 years I've been a consultant is understanding how we can create some meaningful innovation when we think about all the different parts of, of our associations and how they fit together. So that's that's in a nutshell, it sounds a little vague, but it's in that, that, that sort of area where associations are needing insight, so that relates to research, and also needing to practically get on with what they do with new insight and also keep those trains running that are really important, the existing programs that we need to continue to do while supporting our members and stakeholders and consumers wherever they are. And like Polly, I spent the early years of my career as an association exec, the first 15, as a matter of fact, working for small, medium, and large associations, working for professional and trade associations. And like most of us in the association industry, during that time, I wore a wide variety of hats, often at the same time, but the continuing thread throughout all those positions was always membership. You know, there was always a, a membership component to what I was doing in my association work. So then when I launched Spark, it was a natural 
fit for me to focus on membership work. And I, I really do sort of soup to nuts membership work for associations, both sort of big picture strategy, but also, you know, member value proposition work and do structure work and recruitment and retention campaigns and membership audits and, and, you know, just really anything that you can think of with regards to membership and member engagement and engaging and working with all your various constituent groups. And so it's clear that both of you do a lot of different interesting work in the ways you engage with organizations, but we're here primarily to talk about the recent white paper that you co-authored, Caveat Emptor, Becoming a Responsible Consumer of Research. And so I have to ask right off, you know, what compelled you to write the white paper? And maybe another way to put that is, why does this matter uh, in general and then to your specific audience of associations? So one of the things that I've done since launching Spark is to write white papers. It's a continuing series. I think that Caveat Emptor is number 14 in the series. And they've all been collaborative works, usually with an actual co-author. Polly obviously was the one for this particular white paper. And with all of them, and there are a variety of different kinds of, of topics and, and issues and everything, but with, with all of them, the sort of continuing overarching theme is that there's something going on in the association industry that I'm interested in personally, and that I think is something that as, a, as an industry, as a community, we should probably be paying a little bit more attention to. And so, you know, this latest one is about the whole concept of doing a research program. And the reason that this came up is because executives broadly, including association executives, are tasked with using existing research and generating original research every day for their organizations in pursuit of making good decisions for those organizations and for the customers slash members slash stakeholders, et cetera, that, that those organizations serve. The issue is most of us lack formal training or a formal background in research methods. And there's a lot of not great research out there. So to quote the white paper, good research does not guarantee good decisions, but it certainly helps. And bad research, barring getting lucky and guessing right, almost inevitably leads to bad decisions. So even more specifically, when we think about associations, we are viewed by our audiences as trusted, unbiased sources of information for those audiences that we serve. And providing quality research products is critical to remaining worthy of that trust. So Polly and I took on this project because we wanted to help our fellow executives broadly and association execs specifically be more informed about what constitutes sound research so folks can better evaluate the research you're relying on. You can make better decisions in service to your members and customers and stakeholders and constituents. And you can also make better decisions in service to your organization's mission and remain worthy of those constituents' trust. And I'm wondering, I feel like there's there's a broader issue behind this. I mean, doing valid research and interpreting research in a valid way, obviously extremely important. But I feel like I see so much junk out there that people just willingly, you know, take and, and run with it and they'll make decisions, they'll make proclamations. It seems to me that we just still have what I guess I would characterize as an information literacy problem, which is, I know it's in the United States, I think it's probably global. I mean, assuming you agree with that in the first place, I'd love your theories on why we have that problem, why information literacy is 
potentially as, as low as it is. I mean, I, I could see, you know, late 1990s, early 2000s, internet's really taking over and people are having to grapple with it and deal with it. But I mean, at this point, we have kids coming through school who are doing this, you know, young adults going through college who supposedly are being instructed in how to use information wisely. I mean, is this just an intractable problem or are we making progress that maybe I'm not seeing in, in our levels of information literacy? You're 100% correct about the information literacy problem, not only in the United States, but worldwide. And it's not just kind of a time lag thing where like the youth will save us. So one of the earlier white papers that I had written was on content curation. I wrote that with Hillary Marsh of the content company. And we cited some research that had been undertaken by a team at Stanford University, specifically on information literacy. And the bad news is no one did well on assessing the validity of sources of information. They looked at middle school students, they looked at high school students, they looked at college students, they even looked at trained researchers. So graduate students who are in PhD programs where research is core to what they do. Out of everybody they studied, all the various groups they looked at, the only group that actually fared well on information literacy was professional fact checkers. Well, you know, unfortunately, most of us are not professional fact checkers either. And this was a result of a lot of different kinds of things that they identified. Uh, there's certainly a declining trust in institutions and in gatekeepers for information. You know, we've all seen that, not just with regards to information literacy, but across a lot of different factors and in areas of our lives. There's the volume of information that we're presented with, which makes it very difficult to actually have the time to assess quality. You know, we've also got a really fragmented media landscape or journalistic landscape right now with many consciously intentionally bad actors blurring the lines between journalism and propaganda. And that's not just sort of your stereotypical, you know, pick your favorite evil empire candidate trolls, right? It's also organizations that purport to be adhering to journalistic standards, but aren't. And even social media has been a pernicious influence. So, I mean, there's really been, there's a lot going on there that people have to deal with. Polly, I think there was something related specifically to the white paper that you wanted to mention here. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And I think speaking of the white paper, what we really wanted to do, I mean, I was thinking about myself 15 years ago when we were working on this paper, like what would I have loved to be able to access to quickly get me up to speed, point me to resources to help me because I was like many people, sort of the person who was suddenly facing needing to be involved in research and I didn't have a, you know, an up-to-date training in research. So we wanted here, given what we were just talking about in terms of the importance of information literacy, to help our readers understand that applying those same information literacy skills are an essential part of becoming a more responsible consumer of research that you may be finding elsewhere, or as a producer of research, you know, as organizations producing research, we need to make sure that we're doing the right thing in terms of how we're conducting our research and how we're talking about it as well. So that we can help those who consume our research understand what they're looking at. So we did have an opportunity to interview Dr. Joyce Russell, who's the Dean of the Business School at Villanova, who specializes in leadership and organizational development and has written, you may have heard of her, she's written a column on uh, career coaching in the um, Washington Post and the Forbes publications and happened to be my MBA professor at Maryland. But she also, coming from the standpoint of someone who is both researching what professionals need to be successful and also working with students who were about to embark on their career, had done some research on her own and was hearing from employers that 
having the ability to discern reliable research is essential for everyone. And being able to talk about that research is also essential. So it really touches on kind of both sides that, you know, understanding what you're reading, but also being able to tell a story about the research that you may be, you found somewhere else or that your organization is creating. So it really is something we all need to know. It's no longer the case. We can say it's not my job. It's someone else's. It's just sort of now an essential part of being a professional today. We're grateful to WBT Systems for sponsoring the Leading Learning Podcast. Top Class LMS provides the tools for you to become the preferred provider in your market, delivering value to learners at every stage of their working life. WBT Systems' award-winning learning system enables delivery of impactful continuing education, professional development, and certification programs. The Top Class LMS team supports learning businesses in using integrated learning technology to gain greater understanding of learners' needs and behaviors, to enhance engagement, to aid recruitment and retention, and to create and grow non-dues revenue streams. WBT Systems will work with you to truly understand your preferences, needs, and challenges to ensure that your experience with Top Class LMS is as easy and problem-free as possible. Visit leadinglearning.com slash topclass to learn how to generate value and growth for your learning business and to request a demo. There can be a lot of sources for information, a lot of sources for research. I mean, research just tends to be this sort of blanket term where you say, well, we've gotten some research. But of course, there are different research methods. Research is gotten in different ways. We get that data in different ways and how the data is procured can make a difference in, in what you're able to take from it, what you're able to do with it. But I think we often gloss over the the distinctions between different research methods. And we'll just kind of say there, there was research on it. So we're going to quote the research. But you get into this in the white paper. What are some of the key methods that responsible consumers of research need to be aware of? And how are they different? And I mean, particularly in terms of the types of results that we can reasonably be expected to get from them. Yeah, Jeff, as you mentioned, the white paper obviously goes into this in in quite a bit more detail. But two of the kind of major category distinctions include thinking about whether you're going to do quantitative or qualitative research. That's stuff like surveys versus stuff like interviews and focus groups, or if you're going to do primary research or secondary research. So primary research is conducting some sort of an original formal study that you create yourself. Secondary research is using studies and information that somebody else already conducted or collected. And they all have pros and cons as you might expect. So when you're thinking about survey research, which for a lot of us actually, when we think about research, that surveys are kind of the first thing that pop into our mind. And so when you think about surveys, one of the big pros of doing a survey is that it's very certain. So, you know, you've got these numerical responses where you can have a pretty high degree of confidence in the results if you've constructed and administered your survey well. And Surveys are relatively cost-effective and quick, so they kind of give you these very definite answers and often in a, you know, really sort of resource-friendly kind of way. Some of the downsides are that they're pretty inflexible and they are particularly at risk for a number of the types of biases that Paul is going to be addressing, I think, a little bit later on in our conversation. You know, when you think about 
qualitative research, you know, having those conversations with people, one of the really great things about it is it gets at people's why. So survey research can tell you what, again, with a fairly high degree of numerical certainty, but it doesn't give you a whole lot of explanation about why things are the way they are, why people are choosing the things that they are. Some of the downsides of those more conversational types of research are Number one is that data is not the plural of anecdote, right? Stories are stories, and they are not that sort of numerical certainty data, and they are very resource intensive. There are also two particular types of bias that those conversations are subject to. Those are the the Hawthorne effect and social desirability. The Hawthorne effect is basically you want to please the interviewer, and that might shade how you respond. And then social desirability is just you sort of generally want to look good. And so that might also shade how you respond and maybe would lead to not being 100% honest there. Then when you kind of think about the primary versus secondary choice, there are also pros and cons there. I mean, with with primary research, the great thing is I have designed this study and I have specific questions that I want to answer and I'm going to go get answers to them. Great. The problem is, much like those qualitative conversations, it's resource intensive to do your own original research, particularly to do it well. And there are some, for associations in particular, there are some ethical issues potentially involved in doing research that involves people. And we go into quite a bit more detail about that in in the white paper, but it's all under the term human subjects research. Um, And there's some really, some serious ethical considerations you need to think about there. When you're doing secondary research, um, you know, again, pros and cons, secondary research, looking for sort of existing stuff that that already is out there, somebody else has done it, it's great for doing background research and familiarizing yourself with kind of in broad strokes what's going on in a particular field of study or area of research that you might be thinking about. It can be a good thing to do prior to doing primary research to get some background, to help inform what you might want to ask, to inform how you might want to construct the study. But the downside is it is, in fact, not answering your specific questions. And it also gets back to that information literacy, you know, big, hairy problem. Is this research that I found, wherever it is that I found it, is it trustworthy? You have to really vet your quality of sources if you're going to try to use secondary research in any kind of more than cursory way. So the kind of secret sauce of doing this is to mix your methods. They all have pros and cons, which can often offset each other. That was going to be my question. Is it generally better to have both types, uh, qualitative yes. and quantitative, and <laughs> primary and secondary mixed together? I guess yeah. best of yes. all worlds, you get them all mixed <laughs> together. I'm wondering one of the things, and I think this sort of falls in maybe the sort of primary meets secondary realm. I feel like I'm seeing a lot more sort of meta-analyses going on where people are taking a bunch of different secondary research and sort of rolling it up and you got to do a bunch of statistical stuff on it to make it all, you know, work out and everything, but to help you reach conclusions off of larger, more diverse data sets. Are you seeing that with the organizations you work with at all doing those sorts of meta-analyses? Yes, I think so, because there are increasing numbers of publicly available data sets. And I I think that's one of the things that's causing it. You know, there's all kinds of government data that you can access. There's all kinds of non-governmental organization data that you can access. Some associations make some data public, et cetera. And so there's 
that. And we've also got more computing power, right? Like we're all a little bit more skilled with that there. And even if, you know, you haven't been trained as a data analyst, there's tools out there that are a little bit more user-friendly these days that allow you to bring in data from different sources more easily and work to combine them into one whole. One of the challenges is now you've just taken that problem of, do I trust this source? And now it's not, do I trust this source? It's, do I trust all of these sources? And if I happen to get one into the mix that is a little bit sketchier, now I've just sort of polluted the entire pool. Yeah, that's interesting. It's kind of like in the, you know, an artificial intelligence algorithm. If you get something a little off in the algorithm, it can sort of change everything. Um, I guess same thing with uh, applies with meta analyses. And, and I guess, you know, no matter what kind of research you're doing, you ultimately have to interpret it and, you know, be able to use it for something. You've already brought up the term bias a, a number of times. I'd love to hear your perspectives on what tends to go wrong when you're conducting research and, and then also when you're interpreting that research. And I'm thinking about things like bias, but also, you know, other terms you hear frequently or, you know, validity, significance. I know you go into a, a number of these um, different terms in, in your, your white paper. It just seems like it's really easy, though, to get results from all of this stuff, you know, all of those publicly available data sets if you're doing a meta-analysis. And you feel like you've got really interesting stuff, but then using it reliably is another matter entirely. Yes, that is so true. It is so easy to become, you know, so excited about a data point that you're looking for, you just found, and you want to jump ahead and applying it, or you're under pressure, you know, from a program priority or leadership to rush ahead and start planning or just designing research because we want those results right away. So yes, that is so true. And I have to say, um, by way of introduction to explaining some of the terms that you just introduced, um, I had the opportunity in the last five years, I've recently lost a position at Westat, which is a big research firm, internationally renowned, and had the privilege of being the person in between the researchers and our client um, on those research projects. And this was something, you know, problems that come in research up in research were things that we were really trying to focus on in terms of mitigating before they come up, as well as thinking about where they might come up after you you know, we have data in hand. So it's complicated even for the experts. But I think what we've done in the white paper is really try to introduce these terms so our readers can understand where they might be seeing it in research that they found or while they're conducting research themselves. So I think the first thing is really resist the urge to jump ahead. (laughs) It's the primary message. It's really better to channel that energy to understanding the research you're looking at. So look at the methods. If you're looking at something that's already produced or anything that explains how the author of this research these findings came up with it, um, and also really trying to lay the groundwork before you start doing any research. But you know, some common areas that can go wrong, like you have mentioned, are bias. We can have problems in validity and significance. So I think it would probably really be good to just start with validity. Essentially, validity, one of the factors that helps us understand whether we can stand behind our research or not. It's it's basically the um, validity helps signal whether the data that we're looking at is real, is accurate, is valid. And where problems with validity can arise are essentially anywhere in the research. It really focuses on the execution, so the design of research or the data collection. And if there are issues in validity, it can cause, you know, whether it's we are asking the wrong people for certain questions or our 
instrument is really flawed in some way, it can cause issues with the results and that the data is untrustworthy, it's outdated, it's unclear even, or we collected data prematurely, it's too soon. What we don't want to see, probably the most egregious kind of, of validity issues are related to fabricated data or falsified data. You know, hopefully that's not happening, but, uh, you know, we want to be watching out for that. What's sort of a footnote to validity is reliability, which basically means um, research is, is reliable when we've chosen a research method or approach that can provide the most consistent results. You know, it's replicable. If we took that same instrument and we asked people in the same sampling group, the same kinds of people that we sampled to answer those questions or participate in that focus group if we're dealing with qualitative data, we would get the same you know, the same results generally. So when you put validity and reliability together, that's how we can understand the degree to which we can use, um, we can rely on those results. It's sort of a range, actually. It's not as cut and dry. Um, so we can decide that these results are valid and reliable and they're conclusive. If they're, you know, something's a little goofy on, on the validity scale, the reliability it might merge into being more suggestive or it's an interesting result. And when we see those kinds of signals from our data, we may want to do some further exploration or analysis of the research so we can kind of clear up what might be unclear. If it's inconclusive, you know, we really can't draw any clear or valid conclusions from it. And we probably need to just do some new research start again, figure out what went wrong. So that's kind of validity with a footnote on reliability. Significance, you often hear really, this is where we're getting really nerdy, and I won't go down the rabbit hole too far, but we're talking about statistical significance here. It really boils down to the level of confidence we have in the findings, that they can be generalized. Again, it's sort of, you know, we kind of talk around the same things, but in significance and statistical significance, this is where researchers will use techniques like p-value and margin of error, and all of these are really well-defined in the paper, but it basically uses formulas applied to the data to determine whether what we're looking at in these results is not a fluke. So like p-value is really looking at the likelihood that the finding is not true. <laughs> so, you know, it's really, gets really nerdy really quick, but these are techniques that researchers use to try to figure out, you know, how much can we really rely on this research to make decisions in the end. So places where the primary thing that I think the average professional really could focus in on is bias, because we can usually see that. Elizabeth talked about a few things like who's behind the research. Someone might be in, a, in an interview and not feel comfortable saying something negative in an interview space. So to define bias, basically it's an error. It's a gap between the truth and the data that we have fundamentally. And the problem with it is that it threatens the validity of the data, um, hinders the decisions later on. And sort of good news, bad news here, you know, we know where it can show up. And the bad news is we really can't uh, get rid of it 100%. We can look for it, we can try to mitigate it, but we need to we need to identify it when it does show up. So Elizabeth and I really kind of came up with this notion of trying to group where you could see bias to help our readers. It's kind of three buckets. You can see bias in who responds to research and how. We kind of touched on that a little bit earlier. You know, it's it terms you might hear are response bias or recall bias. Basically means that the respondent can't respond to a question for a variety of reasons. Might be because you've asked something they have no knowledge of, and that could be because you don't have people in the respondent pool, in the sample pool, who have knowledge of whatever it is that you're evaluating. The other bucket, the middle bucket here, is how research is designed and executed. So this gets into instrument, 
bias or measurement bias. You might have a questionnaire or a script for an interview or your focus group protocol that is flawed in some way. You might have leading questions. You might have response scales. This gets into the measurement bias response scales that have an error in it, and then your results are going to have an error. The final bucket are how results are analyzed and reported. So, you know, technical term would be reporting and analysis bias. And it comes down to kind of two general areas where we might notice it is data management error. So you might have a coding error. A lot of times big surveys or surveys that have open-ended questions, the responses are either kind of grouped in a meaningful way and then codes are added to those responses to kind of merge them together so we can more easily analyze that data. And you might have something coded incorrectly and that throws an error. And then one area that I think we all should absolutely be mindful of is reporting bias, where we're talking about our research results and we're not including anything negative or we're not reporting the results at all. We really are honor bound as researchers to, or accidental researchers, to make sure that we're really open and honest about how we're reporting results. And if you ask the question and you can appropriately report on the results, you should do so. And, you know, we need to be careful about the number of responses and make sure that we're able to maintain anonymity. So we have to be careful about those kinds of things. But in general, if, you know, you should report your results as openly and honestly as you can. So, um, probably wondering what we can do about this. <laughs> um, as I said, watch for it, report it in your report, you know, as appropriate, talk about any concerns you might have about the data, report all the data. As you're designing research, follow standard practices with sampling, use random sampling, follow up, you know, all the callback standards that you should follow. Have someone else look at your questionnaire from that sample group. You know, you could think that a question that you're asking makes sense to that population, but it may not, or the response options you're giving, they may not answer the question the way you think they would based on what you're offering. There's certain kinds of research you really should have a third party do. For instance, some salary and compensation surveys, really for a variety of reasons, security and trying to mitigate any bias that should be probably you have a third party do that. Use validated instruments. So surveys that you've sent out before that have provided meaningful results, that's a helpful way to avoid issues. Elizabeth mentioned uh, mixed methods, which I think is an excellent idea as well. And finally, have a plan before you start. When you have plans for each stage of your research, you can avoid decisions, for instance, at a coding stage that might create a problem that you don't recognize at the time is an issue. So plan well in advance how you're going to handle analysis and reporting, what you will report on, Make sure that you take the time to develop a strong instrument, whether it's a focus group protocol or an interview script. Really make sure you spend the time to create a really strong evaluation instrument because it's such a shame when you get to the end and you realize you have a problem. So, you know, you can deal with it, but it's best to try to head that off at the start. And for consumers of research, the last thing I'll say is make sure you sort of check your predetermined perspective at the door <laughs> when you're looking at results, you know, you may want to find something that supports the argument you may want to make or decision you may want to make, but try to notice where you may be biased in your own interpretation of what you're looking at. I think one of the big lessons I'm taking from what you're saying is that Good research requires a fairly high level of discipline. You have to be willing to, you know, continually 
whether you're designing it or whether you're consuming it to, to continually question what you're interacting with. So, you know, who was asked, how were they asked, how many were asked, what was the agenda of the people asking or the people being asked and continually checking on that as you're designing, as you're conducting, as you're reading and interpreting, always being disciplined about that. And I, I think that's, you know, going back to the low information literacy, it may not even be that the literacy is that low, it's that the discipline might be low, because that's tough to do when you're consuming so much information all the time. Even when it's, you know, a specific piece of research that you're looking at, you've got 10 other things going on at the same time, and really applying that discipline to the research, whether you're designing it, creating it or consuming it, it can be tough to keep that consistently going. Absolutely, Jeff, I would say just that, that ask the question, be persistent, do not I mean, if it's unclear, and this is coming from someone who's in between the researcher and the consumer, if it doesn't make sense, keep asking those questions, be persistent. And literally every single person in the world, every single one of us, Polly, you, me, everybody is subject to confirmation bias. Oh, yeah. You know, it's mm -hmm. just, it's so tempting to look and find something that aligns with the way I want this to come out and decide, you know, and basically rationalize my way into, well, this is a good source and this is valid information and I can use this and all that sort of thing. It's just, it's so tempting. Yeah, definitely. I, I know I, I do it all the time. So, <laughs> so I can't, I cannot, uh, I cannot cast stones on that one. Now, I know you've got a number of case studies in this white paper. Is there one you'd particularly like to talk about maybe that helps to bring some of what we've been talking about to life here? Well, there's actually something awesome in each of the four that we'd like to sure. <laughs> briefly highlight uh, okay. for your listeners. So we talked to the Association of American Medical Colleges, and they provide a great example of engaging volunteers in designing your study. The whole thing that started the process of improvement on this, this particular survey that they conducted every year was a question that a committee member asked in a committee meeting. And so they took that as an opportunity to loop back with the people who use the results of the research to find out if it was meeting their needs and to look for ways to do that better. Um, so that's one of them. The American Association of Colleges of Pharmacy, on the other hand, is a great example of responding to a, an, an unusual circumstance, I'll say. It was actually the coronavirus pandemic that came up in the middle of the project that they were already working on. And they were able to pivot the focus of some ongoing research work that they were doing in response to that. And then they used the results of the work that they did in a more public-facing way than they had necessarily initially thought they might be able to. The Casualty Actuarial Society provided a great example of taking on a really big problem, which is the underrepresentation of historically marginalized groups in the profession of being an actuary and assembling an appropriately large group of organizations. So they did this with far more than just CAS uh, to partner on seeking transformative answers to those questions. And then IEEE is the association for all the different types of engineers that are out there, is a great example of being really creative in how you collect your data and that creativity leading to insights that otherwise would have been unavailable to the research team. And I, I won't spoil it for folks by telling the story, but uh, the guy that we interviewed, Mark Beebe, just shares a really fascinating story of some of the data collection work that they did and the incredible insight that it provided for them that would have been otherwise inaccessible. 
Great, great case studies. And we will, of course, be linking to the white paper in the show notes for the episode. So that's very easy for folks to go get that, read these case studies in full, obviously read about everything else we've been talking about here. You say a lot more about methods. You say a lot more about some of those issues like bias and validity. I can't even say validity, validity and uh, significance and those other types of issues that we've been talking about. So just a, a ton in this white paper. Definitely want to encourage folks to, to come to the, the show notes and, and download that. Before we wrap up, this is, you know, white paper that's focused on being a responsible consumer of research. We've touched on a lot of different areas of what that could look like, but I'd love to hear from each of you personally. And know you have to consume a, a lot of research and the work you do and just in your day-to-day -day life. You have, you know, two or three habits of your own that, that you can share that, that help you feel confident that you are consuming research responsibly and that maybe, you know, can be something that the listeners can try to emulate. Well, I think for sure that some of the things we already said, no the basics and just put a little plug for definitely read the paper. But at the end, if there's anything in particular you're interested in learning more about, we included free and online and in-person education sources that we know about. And actually, I, uh, Mark Beebe from IEEE um, suggested one where he actually goes to learn more and he's an expert. <laughs> so figure out where you can find training. We do have sort of a, a list for you. Keep reading. If there's something that, you know, we've gone through the basics. But notice research methods or particular concerns are related to research in your organization. And then take a look at whether there's some more training that you might want to go for. And we also have additional readings and some reflection questions. So it kind of falls under the umbrella of keep learning and keep asking questions, be persistent and find help where you can, you know, whether it's this kind of training or, you know, you might have a friend who's a research expert, have them on speed dial. And I would say when you're looking at research that already exists, when you're doing that secondary research, read the methods section. You know, good quality research will tell you what they did, how they got to the conclusions that they got to. It can be a little dry sometimes, but go ahead and read it. When you're conducting your own original research, it's really important, you know, all the stuff that Polly talked about, being aware of all various types of bias that can creep in at the various points in the process of conducting your study and take affirmative steps to mitigate those biases. But most of all, I would just say, be skeptical, you know, ask questions, you know, Jeff, as, as you yourself talked about, ask questions of who's funding this research, who's sponsoring this research, what are their perspectives, if they have any, who was or wasn't included, you know, are they using some of the things that, that Polly talked about with regards to validity and statistical significance and all that kind of thing appropriately, you know, are they basically trying to make this research say more than it does? Just, just be skeptical and ask questions. Yeah, and I think it's a great point. And, you know, very often you can find out that there is an agenda, there is a bias there, people are bringing a certain perspective. Doesn't mean you can't use the research. It just means you need to have that lens in mind as you're using the research so that you're careful about it. Because you know, like you said, we all have biases. We're not going to get rid of that. So we wouldn't be able to use any research if we were going to say we have to have non-biased research. It's all got some bias in it. But just be aware of what that is so you can factor it into to what you're doing. Elizabeth Engel is Chief Strategist at Spark Consulting, and Polly Karpowitz is an Association Consultant. You can find links to the Spark Consulting site and Polly's profile on LinkedIn in the show notes for this episode at leadinglearning.com slash episode 344. 
In the show notes, you'll also find a link to the Caveat Emptor Becoming a Responsible Consumer of Research white paper that Elizabeth and Polly co-authored, and we recommend that white paper to you for a deeper look at the issues we talked about in this episode. I'll also note that Elizabeth makes many more white papers freely available on the Spark Consulting site, so we encourage you to check out all of those as well. And again, you can find the link to those white papers and the Spark Consulting site at leadinglearning.com slash episode 344. We'd be grateful if you would rate the Leading Learning Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, especially if you find the show valuable. Salisa and I would personally appreciate it, and ratings help us show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. Go to leadinglearning.com slash apple to leave a rating. And please spread the word about leading learning. You can do that in a one-on-one conversation with a colleague or a personal note, or you can do it through social media. In the show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 344, you'll find links to connect with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks for listening and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast. Thank you.